0: You are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice.
1: Greetings, I'm Ashmata. I am a research associate at Nikora Associates. And welcome to this discussion on the study on prevalence of domestic violence in India. Today's discussion is going to focus on how, as vulnerabilities of women heightened with COVID-19-induced lockdowns, we saw an increase in the reporting of domestic violence cases. What follows will apprise us of the nature of the increase of the prevalence of domestic violence, what form of government support was provided through different channels and measures and schemes, and what changes we can expect in in the government's response or policy action going forward to improve the response um, in curbing domestic violence. Introducing the panelists who were a part of this study. We have um, Geetika Malhocha, who is the research manager at NICOR Associates and a part and the global shaper at the Global Shapers community. She also in the study led the research on government support for domestic violence survivors. Vitaly Nekor is an economist and gender policy specialist. She is the founder of Nikor Associates, a youth-led research group, and advises multilateral organizations such as ADB, UN Women, and the World Bank, as well as other private sector consulting firms such as EY and PwC. She is also a part of the Global Shapers in New Delhi and conceptualized and led the research team and also liaised with global counterparts working on similar research. Honvika Gupta is a research advisor at NICOR Associates and is also a global shaper at the global shapers community. And in this study, she led a portion of uh, the portion for the projections and estimations of the number of women impacted by domestic violence in 2020 and also the correlation between economic and women empowerment with domestic violence. So in this study, um, as a part of a broader research on domestic violence, uh, Metalia I would like to, pose, like to pose this question to you as the lead researcher on this. What is the purpose of the study? What is its relevance? And would you like to tell us something about this entire research in general?
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ashwita, for that lovely introduction and very comprehensive. So, I think I'd just like to give a little bit of a background as to how and why we embarked on this study. So, uh, all three of us, of course, met. Uh, I mean, manvika and I knew each other from before. We had been working together at NICOR Associates. And then we met Kitika through the Global Shapers uh, New Delhi Hub, which we all three belong to. And we conceptualized a project to work on and, and address the issue of the shadow pandemic during COVID. Because we started noticing that... Um, the data was already flowing in, and we could see that domestic violence complaints were rising. Now, of course, we know that as a global phenomenon, complaints are always a very small proportion of actual prevalence. But if we see an uptick in complaints, that means that prevalence may be rising much, much more. So um, based on that, we decided to embark on a two-folded project, the first part of which Uh, was to actually become part of a global team uh, which was led by Florence Semegle from the University of Oxford and and a number of researchers came together from different parts of the world, almost 30-35 countries including India, to understand how uh, the shadow pandemic was playing out in their regions. And then the second aspect of our intervention was to work with college students and and undertake some bystander intervention trainings. So in today's discussion, we'll first talk about the research, and then we'll get into um, you know some of the ground level inter- interventions that our team did. But you know, as we get into the research, I just want to lay the foundation. And if you can move to the next slide, I really want to show this data. Uh, if we look at these two graphs, you know very clearly. And these are complaints. One of the set of complaints uh, mechanisms that is available in India to report on domestic violence is to report to the National Commission on Women. And we can clearly see the two curves for 2019 and 2020, where the 2019 curve is literally at the bottom, and the 2020 curve is like a shift. And though the number of complaints is minuscule, You know, for a country where the size of the population is more than a billion, a monthly complaint number of 133 or 148, I mean, these are just laughable. But obviously, this just shows the kind of barriers to complaining that continue to exist and the social norms that continue to shroud, um, you know, complaining against domestic violence and a formal setup. But even so, and having said that, we can clearly see the immense exponential increase even in this set of complaints to the National Commission of Women between 2019 and 2020, especially in the months of the lockdown, when we look at the curve for May, June, July 2020, especially July 2020, at which point it starts to come down. So... The motivation for this study really stems from the fact that the shadow pandemic became as prevalent as the COVID 19 pandemic, but didn't receive the kind of attention and the kind of redressal that was required. Um, and, and for it to be recognized that to be locked in a house during the lockdowns, during the COVID 19 pandemic, with the perpetrator of violence in your life was a lived experience for millions of women in India and millions of women across the world. And till today, I mean, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic has come and gone, but the shadow pandemic continues. And we have not been able to find, even till today, the resources and the political will to address this pandemic despite the fact that it's been an emergency issue for decades. So, you know, that was our motivation. And, uh, you know, the research that we did actually comprised of a number of pillars as well. The first pillar was really to estimate and and project how much the prevalence is, because obviously looking at the complaints data uh, does not give us much of a guide on actual prevalence of domestic violence in the whole country. Um, the second was to try to understand the lived experience of a number of women and their experience of complaining of actually going and trying to seek help from authorities during COVID. And uh, you know we did that as well. And then the third aspect that we looked at was gaps in budgets. And what we found, um, you know, of course, there's a beautiful study by Oxfam that we referred to throughout our, uh, you know, throughout our research, which actually uh, projected that there was a nearly 70 to 80% gap between allocations and requirements just when it came to meeting the targets that governments have promised uh, should be met as per their, you know, scheme targets, not even as per prevalence. So. Um, you know, we have that study, but then we came out with our own estimates, which were also very much in line. That you know, for 2020 prevalence, what kind of resources and budgets are required, and they are far higher than what is getting allocated. So, while a lot of this um, research will come out in our book chapter, which uh, you know, which should be out in a, maybe a year's time, uh, and is under review by a number of uh, publishers. But you know today we just want to give a flavor of some of these aspects, the most important aspect, three aspects we want to talk about today. first one being the actual prevalence estimations and what um, we and Oxfam also has a you know similar uh, methodology for estimating prevalence. So we have you know looked at that. but the second is around What are the measures that some states are taking and even the national government is taking to assuage domestic violence in that sense and to at least try to provide some basic level of services? But the third aspect that we'll be discussing much more in depth towards the end is really what can be done. Uh, One, of course, by governments, but this is not just a government's issue, this is an issue of civil society. This is an issue of private sector. This is an issue which impacts women's labor productivity. This is an issue which prevents women from working. So it's not only the government which is to be held responsible, but all pillars of society. So what can we do across the different societal pillars to manage and uh, reduce the prevalence and prevent uh, domestic violence? So I think that's the you know, agenda that you know, we are laying out for today.
1: Ali, thank you for your answer. And um, it definitely lets us understand how necess- necessary this research study is. And now that we know that, um, Manuka, I would like to ask this question to you. Even though we are aware of how frequently women encounter domestic violence in its various forms, Can we estimate and what is the estimate of how many women were impacted by the shadow pandemic
0: in India? Thanks Ashmita for that question and Mitali for setting the context for the study and um, we did uh, try to estimate the number of Indian women facing spousal violence in 2020 there was a lot of data quality and availability issues for domestic violence and especially during COVID-19 we did not have the real numbers available and multiple assumptions were made in this entire projection so I'll just quickly take you through the methodology and then focus on what the actual numbers were so we started with the entire female population of uh, for india in 20 as per in 2019 and the proportion of married women as per the census 2011 and the proportion of ever married women who have ever faced spousal violence in 2019 as per the uh, health and family survey Uh, this is not to be confused with the crime records but the number of women who have just said on a survey that they faced spousal violence using these three numbers we came to the indian woman who have faced spousal violence in 2019 the actual number and not the proportion and We also had the number of filed complaints of spousal violence in 2019 as per the crime records. Using the 2019 numbers of complaints and prevalence, we came up with the complaints to prevalence ratio for 2019 and we also had the estimated number of complaints received in 2020 from a subset of the crime records which is the national commission of women numbers, uh, the numbers from national commission of women and using the complaints to prevalence ratio for 2019 and the estimated number of complaints received in 2020. We tried to estimate the prevalence which is the number of indian women face who have faced spousal violence in 2020 and uh, if we move to slide 6 i can show you what those numbers were so um in 2019 we saw that 84 million women uh, said that they have faced spousal violence in any kind which is either uh, emotional uh, violence or physical violence or sexual violence and but against the 24 84 million women facing violence only 150k women actually reported it in the crime uh, crime in India report against uh, in the crime records which which gave us a complaints to prevalence ratio of 0.17 percent and using this we tried to come up with two scenarios of complaints to prevalence ratio and we saw that uh, the 2020 prevalence of Indian women facing spousal violence could be Anything between 150 million and 178 million. So if we move to the next slide, we can see it in a chart. Uh- where in 2018 we saw that 85 uh, million women face spousal violence and in 2019 we saw 84 million facing 84 million women facing spousal violence but in 2020 uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns we saw that that number could be anything between 150 million and 178 million which is a huge number and due because of this huge jump the government uh, and other stakeholders which is the civil society organizations had to conform and you know regroup and try to be a try to uh, regroup and see how those services are catering to the women who are facing spousal violence at this large scale which is double of what was seen in 2018 and 2019 so this is how some of the projections went and yeah thank you
1: thank you for that mandika it helps us uh, lay the ground for how prevalent domestic violence, in fact, is and how the spike was observed. And now that we know that it is very evident, even from the increase in the complaints of domestic violence, what role did the government, um, and Geetha, I want to ask this question to you, what role did the government play in combating and curbing domestic violence through its various schemes or initiatives?
3: Um, I, I'll begin with what the scenario was before COVID as well. So the government in India has been undertaking several uh, initiatives and schemes. Uh, there are currently nine active schemes to support domestic violence survivors, which, are, which mainly cover several thematic areas, including ease of reporting, providing shelter homes, legal aid, psycho, psychosocial support, counseling, and sensitization of police. But there are only three schemes which are in like focused on domestic violence, and I'll give you a brief about those as well. And these schemes were largely started uh, way before uh, domestic, uh, way before the COVID nineteen pandemic, in around two thousand fifteen, when the government properly launched these schemes. So the first of these is the one stop centers, which are facilities that affect, uh, which are facilities that provide indicate integrated services, including medical assistance and complaint lodging support and legal aid and shelter to women who have been affected by violence. Similarly, we have something called Swadhar Grave, which are short-stay homes which again offer victims shelter, food, clothing, counselling, training and other such things. Lastly we also have the women helpline which is a national helpline and something that provides 24 by 7 emergency response service to women who have been affected by violence and these uh, and this women helpline is like it aims to provide uh, a comprehensive assistance and direct women to the appropriate authorities such as police hospitals and other such things now moving on to what were the emergency measures undertaken by the government and like by the central and the state governments during covid 19 because of the increasing number of uh, increasing number of women who were getting in- impacted so there are uh, so we can categorize these uh, emergency response measures under four verticals first of that first of those will be logistics and operations second will be reporting and legal services and third is awareness campaigns and the last one is health so for the first one which was um, like logistics and operations the ministry of women and child development it shared guidelines for continued operations of essential uh, domestic violence services and it provided uh, guidelines for everyone and shared details on how the uh, district collectors and magistrates could arrange for social distancing and provide uh, protective gear within the one-stop centers that are prevalent in India across across all states. Similarly, the National Commission for Women, uh, they held virtual capacity building workshops across states, again, communicating safe standards, operating procedures, quarantine requirements, menstrual hygiene, and other provisions that could be provided in their shelters to support women who are in distress. Um, in addition to this, the city-level police units and the community health workers and the Anganwadi's, uh, Anganwadi workers that are there, so they were also given um, like capacity building workshops to be enabled to, uh, to increase awareness and provide rehabilitation initiatives for people. Uh, As an example, Tamil Nadu, which is one of the states in India, they launched a response system to rescue women who are suffering from uh, domestic violence. And the Anganwadi workers there they acted as coordinators to ensure that this rescue mechanism was uh, being undertaken properly. And they were receiving and escalating all the domestic violence-related calls to superior officials. The second uh, pillar that we talked about that Mm -hmm. was to ensure that there was uninterrupted legal services which were provided to the victims so ncw again launched a whatsapp helpline which was uh, this was a dedicated helpline uh, to support women who can actually um, Complain like come out of and like complain against their perpetrators, and this is one of the data that was uh, that we used for our projections as well as mentioned by uh, Manvita. So this commission actually tracked all these uh, complaints and they fast tracked these complaints to provide immediate so- security to survivors similarly there we have something called mahila thanas which are like police stations which are um, operated by women they were also promptly activated and in different states which were uh, like to name a few were madhya pradesh bihar Orissa, punjab tamil nadu amongst others so these special cells they established again their local helplines and directed survivors uh, towards whatever shelter homes are available in their state and operating and also provided counseling services and assistance for medical aid and other such services for the victims in distress second uh, thirdly uh, th- there were also several national awareness uh, national awareness media campaigns that were organized by the uh, national uh, commission for women as well as different states uh, two of those and the national level ones were called hashtag say no to domestic violence and the second one was uh, suppress corona and not your voice and these were featured on national uh, news broadcast doordarshan uh, all india radio and other uh, private and private television and radio channels to ensure that the mac- like to ensure maximum uh, circulation of these uh, awareness campaigns and similarly in different states like in maharashtra there was unmute the abuse campaign in west bengal there was stop domestic violence campaign and like these campaigns were also in different states were held in um collab- uh, in close collaboration with the other ngos and community uh, based organizations that are operating in the state and who have uh, like who who were in touch with the uh, c- civilians on ground and lastly, to uh, provide, because even mental health of everyone was at stake and like it was getting impacted. So the National Institute of Mental Health and Allied uh, Sciences, they provided a telephonic psychological counselling aid for women who were facing domestic violence and other forms of violence through a helpline number. And again, this was uh, linked with other uh, facilities that the government is providing, support services that the government is providing, such as one stop centers and the women helpline so though these initiatives were undertaken we can still see that like as mentioned by mithali and manvika that there were a lot of women who were still not able to come out and they were to come out and complain and they had to um, endure whatever uh, the sub- domestic violence that was really happening during the shadow pandemic thank you
1: thank you Githika. Um, that was a very informative answer and as you said and as was reiterated throughout the discussion the, the role of the government is important but it does not end at that so taking this forward i would like to ask you mitali how apart from the government how can private stakeholders and even at large the civil society change the way um, the response has been to domestic violence, and how can we build a more effective support system and ensure that recovery
2: from COVID nineteen itself is gender sensitive? Uh, you know, this is a very packed question, so you know, let's let's try to unpack it a little bit. The first thing is that you know, as we noticed right up front, and you know, we talked about this right at the beginning, we have to stop considering that it's only the government's responsibility to address the issues of survivors of violence against women, you know, and and not only women. Of course, today we focused our discussion a lot on women because we have at least been able to create data for women. I wouldn't even say that it's available, but, you know, we've been able to extrapolate and, and have some estimates. But for persons of minority genders and for the LGBTQIA community, we have not, Even got separate estimates or data. So, you know, the first step really is to keep ourselves informed. We have to collect data. And again, that data collection can be done by private agencies. There are so many private agencies in India that are doing data collection, but collection of domestic violence data may not be on their radar. So, you know, this can be definitely one area in which civil society organizations and and donors. And CSR um, can come in and say that, look, we we want to do more research on domestic violence and for that we need the data and therefore private agencies will then be motivated to collect the data, which is gender disaggregated in the true sense, not only in the sense of men and women, but amongst um, a larger number of groups uh, across minority genders. So that's really, you know, one, one area which needs a lot more push and not only from the government the second aspect is to really think about how are we you know framing the question of investment in domestic violence prevention and management services because at this point when we think about domestic violence we think about it as a social necessity that the government should set up some facilities and and that's about it but I think that domestic violence needs to be looked at as a community management issue. Given the numbers that we've got of the prevalence, You know, if we are seeing that in a year, minimum 80 to 90 million women are being impacted by domestic violence, then government facilities cannot deal with that amount of influx and that pressure. And then the second uh, you know, aspect is really around the fact that it's not only about the geographic concentration because these are cases which are coming up more and more and more in larger cities where the reportage is higher and that's where the facilities are higher, but we know that it's spread across the country and that's why community management and community issues and rehabilitation becomes even more important and even community level mediation because in many cases people don't want to go to the police you know the police being the only uh, agency to whom you can complain automatically becomes a deterrent to women um, survivors who you know don't want to say break the family right they just want a relief and there are many other mechanisms like community level reconciliation, panchayat level interventions, um, you know, resident welfare associations getting involved, or even within family mediation, which can be undertaken where relatives or close friends or family members get involved, or community based organizations uh, can have you know a, a role to play, where it can be done in relative secrecy you know that that the aspect of privacy and secrecy and not you know making it out to be uh, something which is very public and and to be dealt with you know within the family becomes important as well in the indian context so i think we have to think about more and more alternative channels of reporting which are community led community managed and spread out amongst the country in a decentralized manner but at least have some training guidelines and support um, from the government as well as from uh, community-based organizations you know so so we need a system we need a systemic overhaul and um, and and we need systems to be built at different levels so you know that's the second aspect the third aspect is how do you deal with this in workplaces? Because often your workplace is the one place that you may trust outside of uh, you know other other channels. And at least for the women who do work, um, this can be you know one area where you can trust your colleagues. You can trust your um you know you can trust your hr for example because you know you you are employed there and you have been working there for some time maybe it can be one area where women can you know go for redressal and and i think workplaces setting up systems to support women who are in distress within their homes can also be an effective mechanism workplaces already are mandated to set up posh committees um, for dealing with sexual harassment at the workplace and therefore you know since many of these committees are already functional, it may be just about going one step forward and saying, okay you know let's also try to have some systems in place maybe in partnership with community-based organizations to also uh, you know support women employees you know who, who wish to complain about the domestic violence situation in their homes. And then beyond this, I think we have to think about media and community-level campaigns and really large campaigns led by, uh, you know, personalities, stars, social media, influencers, and especially men and boys. You know, it's important for men to take a stand and to say that, you know, violence is just unacceptable. I just want to give a pop culture reference here of the ongoing trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And I think a lot of people globally are following that trial and um, it's becoming um, you know, such a convoluted case that it's taking away from the prevalence of domestic violence amongst women. Because that case is a case of maybe a woman defending herself And or it's a case of a woman being an abuser that will come out as the legal proceedings move on. But at some level, the way the media reportage of that case is being handled, it's coming across as though, um, you know, it's diluting the issue of violence against women and and of domestic violence in particular. So it's very disturbing. And, And this is exactly what needs to be refrained from you know and this is exactly the kind of sensitization that we require in the media that you know when when a domestic violence case needs to be reported upon it should be dealt with very sensitively and of course violence against men also needs to be dealt with equally sensitively you know when it's uh, if it's on both sides as in the case as in this case but uh, in the indian context it's extremely important that all of these different entities, central governments, state governments, community-based organizations, media, and and on top of that, the private sector, employers, uh, can all come together and start to look at domestic violence prevention services as an essential service, the way we look at healthcare services, the way we look at education services, This is part of social infrastructure. This is our country's social infrastructure. It's not um, a cost center. This is something which the government and other agencies, as well as private sector and employers, need to invest in the women of this country to enhance and protect not just their labor productivity, but also their human rights. And there's a business case to be made, there's a rights-based case to be made, but the case is clear that domestic violence services are a basic social infrastructure service like healthcare and education, which are owed to uh, more than 50% of the citizens of the country and, and need to be looked at as such, not as expenditure or costs, but as investments as an infrastructure. So I think that's the way we move forward on this.
1: Thank you for your answer, Nathalie. And just to re-emphasize on a few things that you said, I would like to bring back two of the articles that were authored by you that were published some time back. And just pick up two of the quotes that really sum up what you said. One of them was, how um, as we move towards building back better post-COVID-19, the social infrastructure and services required for prevention of violence against women need to be viewed as investment in the country's human capital rather than expenditure-like items in budgets, And which you talked about in your answer as well. And something that the Global Shapers New Delhi Hub had been doing is, Taking sessions with young people to encourage them to speak up and share their stories and condemn domestic violence, which again brings out um, is the first step towards complaining and speaking up about it.
2: So exactly, yes. That and, uh, you know, I, I just want to take this opportunity um, to, to really talk a little bit about the initiatives at the Global Shapers New Delhi Hub, um that you know we've been doing on ground. And, and, of course, uh, I started that project when I was curator of the hub in uh, um, 2020. In fact, I was called the COVID curator because, uh, you know, I literally took on the curatorship of the hub when uh, COVID began. And in my entire period was uh, marred by lockdowns. But, uh, you know, through, through that period and even now, we are doing a project on um, prevention of domestic violence. And, and about, uh, you know, uh, working with young people across Delhi University um, in different colleges where, you know, our team goes and does bystander intervention and training sessions uh, from the Global Shapers New Delhi Hub to maybe the women's development cells across different colleges of DU. And and we just take these sessions. And in many of these sessions, I think Manvika Gitaka and other members of the team uh, have led many of these sessions. And... We have just heard so many stories, which are, I mean, of course, people's real experiences of how they have overcome domestic violence in their homes, in their families, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, it's been it's been a huge learning experience for all of us um, to try to develop a greater empathy for the people who are um you know going through this because it's not only the person of course the person who has undergone the violence it breaks their complete um confidence and the mental impact lasts far beyond the physical impact but it breaks the entire family as well and uh, you know that's what we are seeing amongst the, the kids that we are talking to that how you know how it has impacted them and how can they deal with it and these are the kind of tools that we you know we try to empower and equip them with so um you know now we can have a few we just have a few snippets with us of uh, how we are doing this so you know we can just play those as we end today's session so a big thank you to Kitika, manvika ashwata all of you um you know for for being here and for supporting this work and for coming together as a team so that we could do this research and also for the groundwork that we've been doing. So we'll now leave you with um, just a few snippets of the work that we've been doing and and testimonials, et cetera, from the students. Thank you.
4: I will say here that individuals who witness or are aware of violence being perpetrated can play an important role in helping survivors. Um, the most important thing is that such intervention always, always has to be cognizant of victims' needs and circumstances. The most important one um, to me personally is the idea of financial independence. I know how much my mother struggled because her first instinct when she left was, will I be able to provide my children the same life that they've had Um while I was married and we were a two income household will I be able to provide those same things for my children Um, and it was hard I know she kept us in school by selling uh, some of her stridhana gold jewelry Um, and it's amazing to me that we we don't talk about these issues because we assume that there is an ostensible privilege that is coming with it of course if she's walked out she would know what she's doing Um, we don't know somebody's circumstances when we meet them so how do you encourage them to keep control over those finances i know my mother had money that she used to stock away separately and she had control over her own bank account how do we encourage our peers and older women to take control of of them of your money i think that's the first conversation um in addition to of course the other things that we need to be having about this is how do you become so financially independent that you're not dependent on someone else for that. A lot of this is about getting women back into the workforce we're talking more and more about how many jobs are being lost during Covid.
2: So domestic violence is so prevalent and so out there that you know people start taking it for granted and start considering it to be normal um, and even victims think that it is normal. How do we address this and what are the sort of conversations around it that can go?
4: So the normalization aspect of this has always been that it's become so common as an occurrence and I completely agree with whoever put that question there is that we have internalized it to a degree that is it is no longer seen as being problematic and you're absolutely right when you say this is a completely issue Um, it's not actually limited just to our homes so the question and Again, the the question before us then becomes, how do we start to have these conversations? You start by making sure that you recognize it when it happens. You should not have to put up with abuse from anybody. Um, And drawing that line for yourself and drawing that line for everyone around you is the most important thing. To remember that you can draw that line. It is yours to draw um, and nobody else's. I think that is the most important thing that you can give to someone, that you can give to yourself, um, knowing that there is never any call for violence. There's never any call for aggression. Um, Not at home, not at work, not in your public life. Just, it's it's completely unacceptable. We start by normalising the unacceptability of
2: violence.
3: You have been listening to the INCJ podcast Conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.